Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 173. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss 2021's Jungle Cruise. We waited a long time for this movie to come out, and we were very excited to see it then, and I was really excited to do the rewatch this week because I've been looking forward to this conversation. Same. Uh, I mean, do we really even need to get into it? Jungle Cruise is such a classic ride. Obviously, it's one of our favorites. Uh, It was an opening day attraction at Disneyland, so I think it's fair to say that it is iconic, and there was a lot at stake with this movie. And this movie was rumored for a long time. I mean, I remember once upon a time, about 10 years ago, there was a rumor on the interwebs that it was going to be a vehicle for uh, Tim Allen and Tom Hanks, which kind of surprised a lot of people because they're like, well, we already have them as Buzz and Woody. And there was a discussion that they were perhaps going to star in this film. So I don't want to say this movie was in development hell, but it's been out there for a long time. I'm kind of surprised it took this long to get it made. I remember that. I almost forgot until you brought it up just now, but I was so jazzed about that. But in a way, I'm kind of glad that it got pushed back a little bit because now that we're seeing all of these movies come out based on attractions and they've been alluding to it for so long now that they're going to do the Society of Explorers and Adventures. Yes. I think it was worth the wait if that's where we're eventually going with all of this. For sure. And I think the big question is, it was worth the wait because we know that we have C coming. But was this film itself worth the wait? That is what we are here to discuss today. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. It is 1916 in London. Dr. Lily Houghton and her brother McGregor are in search of the Tears of the Moon, a flower from the Lagrimas de Cristal tree, which holds great healing powers within its petals, and they believe that it can revolutionize medicine. Meanwhile, the evil German prince Joachim is also in search of the tree and its great powers. Lily steals an arrowhead artifact from the Royal Society that she believes will help her find the tree that most others laugh off as a myth. They head to the Amazon where they meet skipper Frank Wolf, who runs a scam of a cruise that robs tourists of their money, which he needs to pay back the overbearing harbor master. Uh, Nilo, who lent Frank money. Lily arrives in Brazil and hires Frank to take her and McGregor to Lagrimas de Cristal. Joaquim and his crew arrive in their submarine to take the arrowhead from Lily, but she, Frank, and McGregor escape and head down the river. Joaquim, meanwhile, revives Don uh, Aguirres and his former con- uh, fellow conquistadors, excuse me, who had previously been cursed by the jungle for killing innocent villagers and they join the quest for the tree as well because they're going to help Joaquim and break their curse because we learned that about 400 years prior they too were in search of this 
power. We learn that Frank at one point was also seeking the Tears of the Moon, but has since given up. They are captured by the Puka Machuna tribe, but it turns out that they were hired by Frank, who has a good relationship with them and their leader, Trader Sam. Sam translates what is written on the arrowhead, giving them the location of the tree while also telling them that they must find it under a blood moon, which is happening in just two days. The conquistadors attack the village in pursuit of the arrowhead, and Frank is feared dead after being stabbed through the heart. Frank exposes that he is a fellow conquistador who is cursed, but because he stays close to the river, the jungle has not claimed him. We also learn that he drew Lily's map many, many years ago, the one that she's been carrying along with the arrowhead, and that Don Aguirre was seeking the tears of the moon to cure his ailing daughter. When he grew impatient with the tribe that took them in, he killed the chief and they began to slaughter its people, which Frank took no part in. As the chief was dying, he cursed them to protect the arrowhead and the tree. So, of course, Frank, knowing that they are cursed, does everything he can to stick by the river because that's the only way he can be saved from the jungle itself. We also learn that Frank trapped the other conquistadors in a cave where they couldn't be returned to the river, and they were turned to stone. Joaquin captures McGregor and threatens to kill the Pukamachuna if he doesn't tell Joaquin where Lily and Frank have gone, because they have now set off on their own to go find the tree. And they arrive at La Luna Rota and drain the river water, exposing a hidden temple. Joaquin arrives, and Frank offers to make the tree bloom in exchange for one flower petal, which Joaquim agrees to. Lily assists in returning the arrowhead to its rightful place when they realize that it is in fact a heart that holds a petal inside. They return them each this being the heart and the petal, and the tree blooms again. Lily shoots Frank, faking his death, while Joaquin takes Lily to retrieve their petals. As the blood moon sets, the petals begin to die. Lily gets her petal, while Frank McGregor and Proxima, uh, who is the large jungle cat that Frank has more or less adopted, they fight off Joaquin's men. The conquistadors arrive in search of the petal. Joaquin is killed, and Frank uh, sacrifices himself to seal off the river, leading to the jungle, claiming all of the conquistadors, including Frank, because now there is no more river water to protect them. Lily uses her only petal to revive Frank, and they all return to London, where the Royal Society, who once laughed her off, offers her a membership, but she or I should say McGregor, not so politely declines the invitation to join their association. Before we do anything, I have to give you props. That was German, Italian, Spanish, tribal. Well done. That was not fun. (laughs) I love coming on here every week and talking these films. I love watching these films, but I will tell you that other than maybe like Endgame or Infinity War or even some of like the really in-depth Star Wars films that we talked about as the new trilogy got deeper and deeper. This was probably the least fun I've ever had having (laughs) to like recite a plot. And believe it or not, I left a lot on the cutting room floor. No, I was thinking that as we were watching it and going through, and then when the subtitles started coming up, I was like, oh boy, that's going to be a lot to get through. But you got through it very well. Yeah. Um, All right, let's start talking about 
right from the very beginning of the movie, we get a lot of backstory. They do a really good job of like quickly introducing you to Aguirre and these conquistadors, and they don't waste a lot of time with unnecessary backstory, getting you to the point where we meet McGregor and Lily. I thought that they did a good job batting lead off here. I would agree. I like that it started with a flashback. I'm just not sure that that was the right one. I feel like it would have been far too heavy handed if we started off with Frank doing the spiel, uh, which is something I have to say, even from the trailer, you and I were very excited about. I don't know if you remember the first time we saw the trailer. Yes. We were like, is this going to take on a serious tone? Is it going to be hokey? Are they going to have the jokes? We know they have to do backside of water in there somewhere. But as soon as you and I saw that he was like this con artist skipper, we were so all for this. Uh, so anyway, I'm not sure that that would have been the right move because I think it would have been so obvious. But mm-hmm. I just don't know if this was the backstory we needed up front. I think maybe they could have gotten a little bit more involved um, with the reason that Agira had wanted the the pedal yeah. was to save his daughter's life. And it wouldn't have villainized them so much from the beginning. And I, I think it would have uh, almost sort of given him more of like a, a Captain Barbosa quality. And forgive me, because I'm probably going to compare this to Pirates a million times because the parallels are all there. Yeah. You know, obviously Barbosa is the villain, but he's such a layered villain. And I think that that would have given us a little bit more of an interesting dynamic with Frank, the the relationship there is already interesting enough, but I feel like not making it so black and white and sympathizing with the villain out of the gate would have been a little bit more effective. I think you're right. It would have added a really interesting layer. I think it would have made him a sympathetic villain because ultimately, like he's he's really not the big bad in this movie. That's Prince Joachim. Right. So you could have had a character like a Barbosa or even if you really want to dip your toes into the nautical water, like a Captain Nemo, like somebody who's like kind of mysterious. You you know that there's something wrong with them. You're not supposed to like them, but you're kind of like really attracted to them in a, in a way because they are so unique and so different and so interesting. They could have leaned into that a little bit here. I would agree, but I do think that Joaquim is more than Nemo in this situation because he's an eccentric. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, and we'll talk about the cast and the character soon, but the way that he is played adds a lightheartedness that I think the movie, you could tell, I think, in the trailer that it was going to be fairly lighthearted. And it does carry through. That tone carries through throughout the entire film. Really, from the beginning, because once you get past that flashback, you get a classic Disney snatching grab from the start. As Lily, who is played by Emily Blunt, is trying to get this artifact that Joaquim is also trying to get as well from the Royal Society. I love that when we meet her, she is reciting the speech that McGregor is delivering. I think it's such a great character moment because it establishes her as the brains of the operation. Yes. Uh, And a little bit controlling, which I think is important to set up out of the gate. I think so, too. And I think for the movie to be taken seriously as a period piece, I think 
she was very much laughed off by the Royal Society. Later on in the film, when McGregor goes back to the Royal Society and tells them that Trader Sam is a woman, they laugh that off as well. So I think if they were trying to make an accurate period piece 1916, for her to stand up there and do it, would it would it, would the scene have carried the same weight? I don't really know. Because I think that you get some tongue-in-cheek because you know that McGregor is not comfortable reading off of these cue cards. Pause for dramatic effects. Exactly. Um, I think that it does a really good job fleshing her out as a character. You know exactly who she is from the moment you meet her, but it also puts her in that position to be stealing that arrowhead because now McGregor is really just acting as a distraction more than it is anything else. Which I think is what she wanted the entire time. But to your point, if she was actually the one delivering the speech, does she trust McGregor to execute this? No, because she she knows he's kind of a nervous Nelly. Uh, but I also think this was a more effective way of going about it than seeing her up there had they actually given her the floor and heckling her just because she's a woman. Right. It's what you expect. It's how women were looked at at that time. But we've seen that now. That's that's become a trope of media. It yes. is the naysayers when a woman is in a power position. So I think that this was much better. What I don't love is that we see Lily pull off this, I dare say, Jack Sparrow-esque escape from the society storage room once she gets the arrow. But the whole time, it's riddled with, oh, oh no, oh this. And I feel like she's so much stronger than that. I wanted her to be more in control of this situation. I think she's smarter than that. But but this is, I think, where you pull a lot from Jack Sparrow because it seems like she didn't really have a plan. She's making it up on the fly and just getting lucky. I respect that she's winging it, but I feel like for someone who's otherwise so composed and pulling off this elaborate scheme shouldn't be doing these damsel in distress noises, which is kind of what it is. I will disagree with you slightly only because... She is extraordinarily book smart. She is the entire film. She f- is able to read between the lines better than anyone else. But she's very stubborn. She's very strong-headed. And that tends to get her in trouble often while they are actually on this jungle cruise. And she doesn't at time listen to reason or listen to people who are telling her, hey, Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I know that Frank is a shyster, and that's the aura that he gives off, and that's what makes him so endearing, you know, to the audience. But it does, this is kind of a recurring theme throughout the entire film. So I think she's very book smart. I just think that she has a lot of learning to do. I I think she's one of these people that because she's so book smart, she thinks that she can just use a power play and steamroll everybody. And it doesn't work out that way over the course of the film. And I actually think that that does work to develop her as the movie goes on. So I I see what you're saying, but I would say that for her performance throughout the entire film, it's actually kind of on brand for the character that that's how she's portrayed from the beginning. Well, I mean, they do say as much. Later on, McGregor and Frank are having the heart-to-heart and... McGregor says as much is it's leap first and figure it out on the way down. Right. Which is totally what she's doing. It's just that I I guess I just expected a little bit more composure from her. 
But she is a very likable character oh, from the start. Absolutely. And then we get introduced to the Skipper Frank. Let's just talk now because th- this is where the the Skipper jokes are really I'm not going to say they're at their peak because they keep coming back around throughout the entire film, which is very funny every time that they do. But this is when you get like the most of them in one sitting. I love the jokes. I love them when I'm on the attraction, Jungle Cruise. I love them here. I felt that, at least in this scene, it was just enough. What I like most about how they did it here is that it's it's fan service. It is a love letter to Disney Parks fans. But if you're not a Disney Parks fan, it actually... It, it doesn't seem like you're not in on the inside joke. Because I think what they do with these puns and these jokes that we've become so accustomed to from being on the attraction... I think they turned it into character development. I think they turned it into a a way to define Frank along along with this shysty cruise that he's putting on. Because I think that was the one knock that I had in retrospect. I don't know if I said it at the time, but in retrospect, I think the one knock against Tomorrowland was that if you were not a Parks fan, you didn't understand a lot of what was going on in that movie. I think Mm -hmm. you missed a lot of the references. This here, I think they did a good job in cleaning it up and they used these i they use the fan service to also develop a character for people who don't know exactly what is going on absolutely i think that that was the smartest play they could have made and it only gets better with the rocks delivery i think he did an excellent job my one critique of this scene is the pacing because the camera holds on him waiting for these laughs and only a few jokes in does it cut back to his audience, giving him blank stares. And I feel like this is where the fan service really comes into play because if you don't know these jokes aren't supposed to land, it doesn't... The live theater element of the ride is not really translating over to the screen in the pacing here. I feel like maybe they could have punched it up if they had a comedic bit where he had a laugh track, which the technology may not have been there for it, but that's when you could have done something really clever with like teaching the toucans or the the macaws to, to mimic the laughing. That would have been a great cutaway just so it's not locked on his face for so long because even though we all know these aren't supposed to land, I feel like you're waiting for something else and it's not until they go off script not meaning that he improvised meaning they're going off the script of the ride uh where he starts going after the little girl i'll feed you to the boa yes that's when it works as far as this scene goes for sure it is also the longest introduction that i can ever remember for a disney film like i know sometimes in the mcu we will get the we'll get the the Marvel slate with the intro and they don't necessarily launch into opening credits with a title card and they just save it for the end. Like the movie will end and it'll say Captain Marvel, you know, or whatever, whatever the case may be. In this case, 
you're like a good 10 or 12 minutes in and you just think, okay, we're not going to get a title card. And then we get a title card. So it's kind of strange that they jammed it in where they where they did to the point where I remember when we saw it for the first time, I was like, oh, that's right. The movie the movie's only just starting now. It was kind of weird. I agree. And I think that goes back to my first comment of how I feel that I'm not sure that that flashback is the right one. Uh, I think it should have been Agira's flashback, then the credits, then we meet our main character, Lily, our other main character, Frank, and then we see the two come together. And that's, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about that off air, how that parallels pirates as well, because... You know, we establish that there's a curse. We meet Elizabeth. We set up the whole proposal gone wrong. And then we meet Jack and then the two stories converge. And then they're off on their adventure. That's kind of how it plays here. We've got Lily's story. We've got Frank's story. And now this is all going to come to a head that Lily and McGregor have booked passage to go find the flower moon. Right. So... Uh, let's talk for a second here. I want to ask you a question because in Aguirre's flashback, we sort of know, I mean, and it gets fleshed out as the movie goes on, but like, we know that there is a supernatural element to this. How did you feel? And how do you feel now that we've seen the movie a couple of times about them having this added layer to the story? Admittedly, I really didn't like it the first time we saw this because this was not the direction that I thought the movie was taken. We had seen it in Pirates already and it so worked for Pirates. Um, So upon first viewing when we came out of the theater, I kind of felt like it was a little contrived and not in the spirit of the Jungle Cruise ride at all. I would agree. Um, Upon first viewing, like you said, the parallels to Pirates of the Caribbean are just so striking. Um, I think where I kind of loosened my grip on it was when I thought back on other films of this ilk that were not Pirates of the Caribbean. When you think about something like Romancing the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, the um, Indiana Jones, you know, especially with Indiana Jones, there's always that supernatural added layer. And, uh, you know, legend and and myth and lore. So uh, the more I thought about that and the more I felt like perhaps this was a love, it, this was a love letter to that genre of filmmaking while also being fan service to Disney Parks fans, the more that I kind of came to accept that that was the avenue that they took. I think that's kind of what got me appreciating this story a little bit more was because coming out of the theater the first time, I was so focused on what I wanted it to be. And now that we've watched it a couple more times, I'm looking at it for what it is. And, you know, really, how else do you get Lily there? You do need this I mean I'm I'm I would totally believe that she is chasing a legend uh but what I like 
is how they layered the character and how they went about this because it's not just that her father was an explorer and he passed away and now she needs to finish his work. I think that it would have been too much been there, done that. It would almost seem like a trope at this point. Yeah. I think where this film sets itself apart is that they do try to tie it to history, which, I mean, yes, can be the same argument you make for Indiana Jones, but you give your villain, Joaquin, such a greater motivation other than I want the pedal for what it can do for science and to give me power. He wants it so that Germany can win what at the time they were calling the Great War because they didn't know it was the first one. Um, So I like how they were able to connect it to history, even though, you know, this is a completely fantastical movie. It grounded it. And I think that that was very smart. And they also took from the book of Steven Spielberg and made the enemy a German. That was just, (laughs) that was all of Indiana Jones was just, it was India. It was basically Indiana Jones versus Hitler. That was, that was all Indiana Jones was at, at the end of the day was always fighting the good fight. And that seems to be something that we are still doing now, even in jungle cruise, we get introduced. Let me, okay. So we get introduced to Nilo as well. And Nilo's, he's a secondary character. He's not a good guy. He's kind of a bad guy. Do you think at this point, when we get introduced to him, Franco's Mimani, and mm-hmm. with, with the with the bird, is it too many villain-esque characters here between Aguirre, Nilo, Joaquim? Like, is there are there too many of them? There is a lot going on, and this is why the boat does not actually leave the harbor until like the end of the first act. It takes a while to get us there. You're almost 40 minutes into the movie before it leaves. Yes, and I do think it would have been more effective if they held uh, Joaquin back a little bit more to, you know, Lily and Frank, she clearly doesn't trust him. That's an obstacle that they have to overcome in and of itself. McGregor is facing the elements. He's completely out of his comfort zone. Uh, And then you have all of the threats of the jungle to face. I think if they had lured us into that false sense of security where you think, okay, our heroes can actually survive this. And then you sort of forget about the German threat until about halfway through the movie. And then, boom, you bring them back. It might have been more effective. However, for this Nilo scene... It's totally worth it. I love everything about this scene. I love the, not necessarily a snatch and grab element, but there's a great Disney chase and and wrestling match in here, which is also great character development for Lily because not only is she running from these people who are trying to get the arrow from her, she's also trying to free all these caged animals on her way. Uh, you know, so she sort of gets stuck and and Frank's got to bail her. Frank and McGregor really are working together to bail her out of this situation. Right. So it's a really fun scene. And to me, it's just so comical 
that you've got this giant submarine in this teeny tiny harbor. The fact that it can even go down the Amazon River, I think is funny. And I, I think that's where we have to sort of like suspend reality a little bit. But I think that also works very well towards Joaquin's character because he doesn't care. He's just going to chase them down no matter what. But the point of what I'm making is that Frank not only narrowly gets our heroes out of this situation, he uses villain A to destroy villain B's business. Yeah. And for that, to me, it's all worth it, especially because and because there's so much going on, you do lose it a little bit. Him and Nilo are at odds, not just because Frank owes me money. It's because Nilo wants control of the harbor. He wants all of the boats. He wants to buy Frank out and have Frank on his skipper payroll instead of Frank owning his own business. So now Frank has eliminated his competition without even trying. I kind of wish, though, that he did have the upper hand and plan that entire thing. I think that Nilo is a necessity here because Frank does not want to go down that river. He knows why they're going down there. He knows that they're going after the tears of the moon he wants nothing to do with it. It's not until she offers him basically more than enough money to pay back Nilo what he owes him that he's incentivized to take them. So I think that it was necessary, and I think that you're right. Using villain A to destroy villain B was just very comical. And I think the most exciting part about it was that it finally just got them onto the river yes. and out of this harbor. Yes. Um. Pants joke. Let I want your opinion on this because we've talked on this show a lot about how sometimes recurring jokes, if they don't necessarily land the first time, they may not land the second time, and they do it way too many times, how it's just totally unfunny the whole way around. I'm not talking about the movie that you all know I hate from 2016 <laughs> with a Chinese soup joke in it because that was awful. At first, when this when I saw this the first time, I thought, my God, this is the wonton soup equivalent, these pants jokes. But for some reason or the next, I think it's because she starts calling him Skippy. And it becomes like barbs that they throw at each other back and forth. I think it actually does balance it out. It's never all that funny, but it's never not funny either. I think it would drag on if they didn't bring it full circle at the very end where Aguirre's conquistador gang identifies her as pantalones because now that's just become her identity. Um no, and I I think it's kind of important maybe for the younger audience to have it called out like that because we're used to seeing this, um, but that was very uncommon at the time. I mean, even when we first meet Frank, all these women that are on his cruise, they're dressed to the nines. I, I would never do that. I can't, I can't imagine being out on the water and not being in comfortable clothes. Like, what if something should happen? Your dress is going to take you down. I don't think they were thinking that far ahead. No, probably not. 
Could you imagine wearing any of that on the Jungle Cruise at the Magic Kingdom when it's 90 degrees outside? Uh, actually, yes, because this movie is giving me Dapper Day goals. Like, I just happen to love this era of clothes. I, I think it's be- like I loved Emily Blunt's wardrobe in Mary Poppins. I love it here. I love Frank's wardrobe. It, it's just so classy. Um but no, I totally want to do this for Dapper Day now. Yeah. Oh, the costumes are great throughout. No doubt about it. Um, I also love the introduction of Proxima. Yes. His jungle cat, or his McGregor, uh, affectionately calls her the murder cat. Um, you get introduced to her in the bar when there is a fake fight when she enters and Frank has to like battle her off to prove his worth to everybody at the bar, namely Lily, um, to get the job. Um, And I love that she is just, it's all a ruse because everything he does is fake, but I love that she is just a recurring character and she's almost, I mean, she is a pet, but she's almost like the mascot of the boat. Right, and they keep building on her as an integral part of this team throughout. I love that they did that and it wasn't just a plant for the sake of humor early on in the movie or a plot device early on in the movie and then you don't see her and it's like, all right, well, what happened to the to the large cat on the boat? She's an integral part of this team. I just wish that, I'm not implying that they would have used a real cheetah, but I yeah. wish that they could have used an animatronic or a puppet or something because she's CGI. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I have to say this on this show, but when Disney gets CGI bad it's really noticeably bad. And it's bad enough that you have the, I mean, did I expect them to go and shoot this on the Amazon? No, but they didn't do anything practical here. It's all a blue screen. It looks amazing. I'm not knocking the CGI as far as the Amazon goes. Right. But when you take into consideration, I mean, we just watched 1994's Jungle Book last week. They shot on location. When you think about something as early on as Davy Crockett, they were out on that riverboat. Yeah. So to me, there's no excuse that you actually didn't put them out on, I'm not saying open water, but at least get them outdoors, you know? Yeah. But yeah, as far as Proxima goes, and, and again, coming off the jungle book there's really no excuse just to lean on cgi when you could have done an animatronic i'm not even saying get the real thing but i'm sure jim henson's creature shop would have been more than happy to participate in this film i want to talk about a line that gets said right as we get out of the harbor and onto uh onto the river here in the amazon um Lily is discussing with Frank the lore, the legend, and they see these dolphins. And he tells her, don't look them in the eye. They'll haunt you, give you nightmares. And she kind of brushes him off. And there's a line that I really love that he says. And I think that it gets overlooked because they basically sum up the entire movie to the point where I wish that they would have used this line in the trailer where he says... If you believe in legends, you should believe in curses too. Yes. That really is a microcosm 
of the entire story here. And I wish that they would have leaned into that a little bit more because it's such a great line that seemingly gets buried like 42 minutes into the movie. I honestly think that they tried to bury it in the trailer because I think had you planted that in the trailer, I mean, the trailer was really all the skipper jokes, right? right. And and we were introduced to Emily Blunt's character, but it didn't give us too much more story than that. We didn't we knew they were off on an adventure. We didn't know for what. And I feel like if you had put all of this in the trailer, people probably would have written it off as this is too much like pirates, I'm not gonna go. I think that was done intentionally. But speaking about bad CGI, those dolphins, terrible. Because they don't look like real dolphins. They don't, you've seen, you know, when they, and it's very rare, they're like one in a million, but there are pink dolphins. It's rare that they exist, but they, they are out there. These, to me, looked like a dolphin mixed with like a tuna fish. It was a very bizarre looking creature. I guess the idea was to make it fantastical, but when you refer to it later on as a dolphin, it can't be fantastical because you've just stamped it with something that we are familiar with. No, there are dolphins that look like that. My issue is that they colored them like the 50th anniversary iridescent weenies. They look like an Easter egg. Yes. Um, yeah, not the best look. They're probably the worst of the CGI in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought aesthetically they were, you know, I thought they were off-putting at the very least. Um, okay, so now you get to take a line from the attraction deeper and deeper. <laughs> and we get further along into this journey and... What starts really happening now is there's like a good 10 minutes right in this chunk of the film where it becomes very McGregor-centric and they start to really develop the relationship between Frank and McGregor, which I absolutely love, while also kind of explaining why it is that he continues to chase Lily on all of these adventures when he is clearly a fish out of water. I absolutely love this scene. I love the character development for McGregor. I love the bonding with Frank. Um, I think it definitely needed, because now at this point, we are past the rapids. Like, there's no turning back for them. They're in a perilous situation. And you do wonder why somebody who packed up their tennis rackets and their nice clothes and wants to wear a dinner jacket on the boat to eat piranha that yeah. is fresh caught, you know, why uh, he would still stand by his sister and not just be like, all right, no, turn around, bring me back or, or I'm getting out of here. Uh, so I think that you needed that loyalty explained other than familial obligation. But the way that they did it was just so brilliant. I love that they went for inclusivity without being preachy. Uh, I think they also managed to do it without being tropey instead of saying, well, I was beat up and, and cast out of town when everyone found out. Right. Uh, it was just so well done and 
they were able the the screenwriting is brilliant too they were able to capture what was going on at the time and how mcgregor's lifestyle choice would have been viewed by society at that point and i love that it just goes beyond that lily is his sister and she stood by him she was a friend when he needed one most and the i would follow her into a volcano for that i love that line it's so good it's not heavy-handed at all. And what I like about this, too, is for a movie that is supposed to be a period piece, and you can make the case that Frank is, on the surface, very much a guy's guy, right? He's an adventurer. We don't yet know that Frank is 400 years old, that he is yes. wise beyond his years, that he has seen 400 years' worth of development and cultural change and how accepting he is of McGregor when... Not that you're ever going to think that Frank would not be accepting, but when so many people aren't, he certainly fits the mold on the surface of one of those people that would not really understand where McGregor was coming from. The Frank that he, or the fact that he just, what was it he cheers him to? He says, here's to elsewhere. And I thought that that was really an important moment for Frank and for the film, just because that's his way, I feel felt of breaking the mold showing that he has been around for so long and that he is a progressive himself and for basically just saying well here's to you and your choices and you're a part of our gang and I thought that that's where the screenwriting was really outstanding right because McGregor is saying that he was set up with you know what is on paper this amazing woman but my interests happily lie elsewhere and that's what Frank is toasting to and I love that that I believe that Frank could be 40 or 400 years old and he's still gonna feel the same way and accept McGregor for sure now we have the uh the tribe that comes the um Puka Machuna which is led by Trader Sam and let me ask you about this, because this, admittedly, I kind of go back and forth on. We get introduced to the tribe. We get introduced to Sam. Sam's great. She's hilarious. Yes. Um, As soon as she pulls the mask off and goes, Frank, are you kidding me? It's on the surface. It's very funny. I go back and forth on whether or not we still needed this to be a part of the scam, though. Me too. My my issues with this entire scene have nothing to do with the gender swap. I thought it was great. I thought it was, again, what this film does brilliantly is that they're able to make these bold choices without being heavy handed about it. Right. Um, my first issue is that the treehouse set, as amazing as it is, rips off a Tiadama in Pirates. Like, again, it's we've said it. Thing. The parallels are there. Um, I mean, I, I like it. I still like it for what it is, but it's very hard not to be reminded of that. Um, I go back and forth on this, but I actually think the more times I watch this, the more I appreciate it. Because at this point, Frank is orchestrating the whole thing. When they when he's giving his first tour he has it staged and you know there's kind of a wink and a nod to hey you came too close with that stun gun there mm -hmm. um yeah with the blow dart yes the blow dart um 
so when they first get captured, I thought this was part of Frank's elaborate scheme. But then I'm like, no, wait, I thought he never made it this far before. So does he really know these people or does he not? Um, I think this would have been more effective even if we're not exactly sure as the audience what's going on, if we at least had a clearer idea of whether or not Frank is in control. Um, because even in the beginning of this scene, they don't put the subtitles up. We right. just have to trust that he is telling them the right thing. And then it's not after Lily starts getting more and more defiant. They give us the subtitles and we know that Frank is not translating exactly for her. Um, I think just a little bit more development there could have gone a long way as far as cluing us in to how much of the upper hand that he's got. But ultimately, you could sort of guess that this is still part of his scheme because now Lily and McGregor both trust him. They are completely invested. They are working through everything and he just pulls the rug out from underneath them. Yeah, and they they cover it up with him explaining, I didn't get a chance to call it off. This was a part of it the whole time. He's trying to scare them off because he doesn't want to go all the way towards, you know, the tears of the moon. He doesn't want to get to the tree. He doesn't want to get to the temple. He's hoping this just scares them because he tells them that they're cannibals. Um, I can buy the fact that he didn't have time to call it off. Um, I mean, how he got in touch with them to begin with, I'm not quite sure. So how you get in touch with them and then you couldn't get in touch with them... Uh, Obviously, it's 1916. He doesn't have a cell phone. He's not going to text them. But the fact that they knew when he was coming and that's all kind of left undefined, I kind of felt like, aren't we past this at this point in time? Like, we didn't need another scam. Right. And the other thing is, when we meet them on the first cruise, I feel like that's just a day trip, right? Yeah. He doesn't take big crowds of people out this far. So why were they there? Now now they're way farther down. Like, are you paying them off that much where they're coming all the way upriver just to scare these tourists? I mean, that's reading far too much into it. But um, no, just as far, the line really bothers me. For, for a script that is otherwise so well-written, the, oh, I meant to call it off... You you look like you you sound like you just got caught texting another broad, you know, like yeah. it, it's just so weak. It was. Um, but other than that, I I like Trader Sam a lot. Like I said before, I think she's funny. I think she's very much in control. Um, they didn't make her feel like something that came out of Pirates of the Caribbean. The set. Yes. Her. Not really. I wanted her to be more of a shyster, though. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to help you unless I get something out of it. And granted, Lily does give her the hat. I kind of thought that there were going to be so many more moments of they bring us to the brink of a life threatening situation. And Sam is like, what's in it for me before I help you out of this? Right. And instead, Frank tells her, go save your family, which is fine. And I love that no matter what, she comes back from McGregor. She always does because now his leg is broken or his ankle or whatever. Right. Um. But I think you miss that 
foreboding element to Trader Sam that you get on the ride or even just going to the bar like there's so much more hijinks and things like that I expected more from the scene in that regard and I expected it to sort of match the energy and the pacing of the snatch and grab at the beginning or them getting out of the harbor and granted they are under attack by Agira's uh you know, curse conquistadors at this point, they have to escape. You still lose that, um, you know, like that comical element of like what makes the sword fighting in Pirates of the Caribbean so great and all of those narrow escapes. Well, well, here's the thing. You can't sit there and say it parallels it so much almost to a fault and then wish that it was more like it. Yes, I can. Um, I actually disagree because what I like from this point moving forward is it very much takes the feel of a treasure hunt kind of movie, uh, especially once Sam starts to translate what is written on the arrowhead. It, the movie takes a different tone. Mm-hmm. It takes more of the tone that I thought it was going to take the entire time. What I really do wish regardless, this is where it screams, please do practical effects they could have had so much fun with Agira's conquistadors if they were practical. I mean, I love the aesthetic of every single one of them. I love that these villains are born from these jungle perils. But to have the honey dripping and do that with makeup, to have... uh, the snakes coming out and maybe have those as animatronics. I think that just would have all been so cool. The the mud oozing and the frogs leaping out. They, there was just so much they could have done here. And it's weak CGI. I agree. Um, what was not weak was the twist. When we find out that Frank was in fact one of the conquistadors. I did not see this coming at all when we watched this movie for the first time. It was a shock. I kind of thought that's what it was building to because I thought it was simply based on a numbers game. I thought it was weird that there were four members of Agira's group and and not a fifth. I don't know why. Yeah, that what? (laughs) I I don't know why. Yeah, I I guess I, I felt like they were too outnumbered. Uh, I mean, listen, if you were on to this before me, kudos to you. I just didn't see that that this is where it was going. But I like this twist. Uh, I like the fact that Frank is one of these conquistadors. And it also explains why, like on the surface, Frank being such an adventurer, and he doesn't even seem to have some great affinity for the Amazon or the river. So it kind of begged the question the whole time, you know, why are you still here? Because he talks about how he stopped drawing because he drew everything he wanted to draw. So he picked up playing the guitar and he doesn't on the surface have a connection to this body of water. So you'd think that someone like that would want to go conquer something else. And he doesn't. And I thought that that was a really interesting way. I thought it was a really smart way answering, uh, actually of answering that question and keeping him in the Amazon. I definitely agree with that, and I think that that's where Nilo's character is so effective because they do such a good job of setting up that he is financially in the weeds. So I would buy that he couldn't leave simply because this is his business and 
he needs money and he's got a bigger picture for what he wants to do, especially now that we know he's going to return to port and Nilo is no longer there. We think he's just going to grow this business. Um, but I think it's effective for the character too, because we know he's the shysty skipper other than, you know, I can't really see Frank like sitting behind a desk and working, you know, other than just thinking that he's an outdoorsman and this is where he belongs. It gives him more of an investment to help Lily and McGregor and see them all the way through as opposed to just half of the money that I'm going to get is on the table, especially because when they leave Trader Sam's, she pays him out in full because she wants to be done with him. Right. She's so fed up. Now he's invested. I don't even think that he cares so much about breaking the curse for himself. I think he wants to see that all the way through and see if Agira can be helped. Perhaps. I think, you know, he's willing to meet his fate. I think that's really what it's more about than anything else. You know, he said, I've had my time. My time has come. I'm ready for this. Because they do, they have this really great scene, actually, as they're explaining what his life has been where he said I got bored I built a town I made friends I buried friends you know he's done everything there is to do he's willing to accept that this is what his fate is because Lily is saying this is your chance for a second life and he's like I don't I don't need it I've had plenty of life this is this is what it needs to be for me um so I I don't think he's trying to do anything for Aguirre at this point more than just kind of putting all of this to bed and moving on because I think he's just so fed up of running at this point. But what I like is that he doesn't play it jaded. Like the worst thing he does is run the scam. He doesn't seem like he's just over this and over his life. Right. That scene that you're talking about where I built the town, I buried friends, that would be enough. Instead, what we get is, you know, we establish that he's 400 years old, we establish that he can't die, and we still get this drawn-out scene of Lily having to pull the sword out that has impaled him. And to me, this is like the only beat of the movie that sort of slows it down a little bit. I mean, I get it. We can't be out on the water the entire time. Sure we can. It's called the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> um, no, but even pirates, they go ashore. But they have given us the constraints is that they can't go too far deep into the Amazon. And I appreciate that because when you think about the ride, you have all of these scenes other than the animals themselves. Anytime there's people, it takes place on land, not in the in the water. When you think about it, you know, they're going up the totem pole or the camp is trashed. Right. Um, and I'm sitting there and... I was kind of like, we sacrifice scenes like that from the ride and not being able to see those familiar things play out to sit here and watch them make, you know, jokes with McGregor and treat it like a euphemism about having to yank the sword out. And then it takes what feels like five minutes of screen time for Lily to actually do it. And I'm like, I would have much rather seen some other group in peril with these animals and Frank bail them out. But... The other thing to sort of keep in mind, and it's something that I've noticed more and more as we're going through it, the Jungle Cruise ride is all of these bodies of water throughout the world connected. It's not necessarily always the Amazon. So 
thinking about it in those terms, okay, maybe not all of that took place on the Amazon and that's why they omit it. But they did actually give us those parameters by saying, and that's why Frank has the skipper business. He cannot leave. Right. No, it was, it's all very smart. But I agree with you. I think that that's, that's the only scene that really slows the movie down because it, it would have worked better. I understand why you have it there. You're trying to prove, hey, Frank literally cannot be killed, even though you just saw him get stabbed through the heart and fall a number of stories and hit rocks on the way down. He, uh, he's like a pinball. Like, he hits everything. Why? Trying to prove a point, I guess, um, which is why this scene needing to be dragged out was not necessary. I guess they tried to do it for comic relief purposes. But I would have rather it been like Lily says, I'll go, because she does say, I'll go on three and counts to one and basically yanks it out. I would have rather she just do that out of frustration because she's had it with Frank. That would have been funny within in and of itself without having to drag it out for too long. Right, and again, this is where like I feel like a very assertive character takes a step back. Sam passes on pulling it out. McGregor passes on pulling it out. So you know Lily's going to be the one to step up and do this. But if you're going to step up, then step up. Don't don't wimp out of it. I mean, I know it's a, a very awkward thing to do. I've never pulled a sword out of anybody. But I, I just feel like if she was going to be like, all right, Frank, I, I got this, then then just do it. The scene that follows, though, more than makes up for it in tone, in energy. Now we get the flashback, the full flashback of Agira getting cursed. And we see how Frank is folded into that mix. Right. Um, the music, the score in this scene, it shouldn't work because it's so punched up and you've got all these electric guitars but it's incredible. I love this entire scene. I would have been fine. You know what? You want to do a prequel of all this? Fine. I'm in. Yeah. Um, well, there is a sequel in development right now. Uh, I would. Uh, OK, well, I'm not going to say anything else because I'm going to hold that for my final say here. But um, yeah, I thought that scene was really good. And I thought that the the other scene that happens around the same time, uh, the one where Joaquin gets his hands on McGregor. I thought this was probably Joaquin's best scene, actually. And this is what I was talking about before. Now we've been through so much with Agira, kind of forgot about you. Right. And McGregor is escaping with Sam in a canoe, and the submarine comes up underneath them, and Sam bails. That's what I expected of Sam. Yeah, she just gets out of there. And Joaquin could just as easily take the wounded McGregor and force him into the submarine. But instead he plays up on him. He goes, yes. would you like tea? And of he, course of he course, would. Because McGregor is going to fall for that. Cause you're just telling him what he wants to hear. Oh, do you like this? The very funny interaction. Yeah, it was very funny. But after a little bit of small talk, he's like, okay, no more games. Where are they? And McGregor doesn't want to give it up. And he, shows him the target and he's going to launch a torpedo and kill 400 people in the tribe if he doesn't give up their location. You know McGregor, as much as he wants to protect Lily, is never going to let 400 people be killed and they know it. So I, it's the, it is the best scene, I think, for Joaquin because it shows just how diabolical he is 
but also how smart and manipulative he is. It it is just such a it's an understated scene, I think, for this villain. I would agree with that. What I'm very surprised though that they that they didn't do, um I love that they've tied Frank back to Agira as the cartographer and that they've also tied that into Lily's story because that's the legend that she's following because those were her father's maps. But in the scene with Sam, they established that they were aiming for the wrong target. They thought that it the tree was going to be in one place and Sam helps them figure out that it's on another offshoot of the Amazon. I don't know, and maybe it was just too easy. I don't know why McGregor didn't give them the first target as the decoy so that Lily and Frank have plenty of time to go to the actual location. I guess because he figures that if he gives them the wrong location, they're just going to come back and destroy the Pukamachuna, and that's what he's trying to avoid the whole time. Like, he could have done it, yes, but then you you have no conclusion. You have no third act of the movie. True. Um, let's talk about this third act of the film um, where you have Lily who cannot swim. This has been a recurring thing as well. She's the only one that can fit into this contraption to pull a release that's going to drain the, the lagoon that exposes the temple because as you know, they point out, 400 years ago, people were not as large as Dwayne Johnson. So he, <laughs> he cannot fit in there. Um, you get this scene. I kind of liked that they went this way. That it was not so much hidden in plain sight, but I think they said turn liquid to stone or turn water to stone mm-hmm. was in the legend. on that. That's what Sam had translated from the Arrowhead. I like that they kind of had this quote-unquote hidden in plain sight thing going the whole time. I would agree with that, but what I don't like is that by the time we get here, this Lily and Frank love-hate, I'm going to keep beating him up thing, it has become so played out. And I realize that they're building that up because she needs to trust him enough to to A, get, get even get in the water, and B, to breathe for her. Because she can't, she literally can't come up for air. She's got to put her life in his hands. And to this point, every other time that he's done that, or, or every other time that she's done that, other than the rapids, he has burned her. But at the same time, that's where it does sort of feel played out. Because it's like, how many times are you going to trust him? Although I will say... I like that they gave her the constraint of being afraid of the water, whereas he can't leave the water. She can't get in it. So I think that that was a good juxtaposition. And you did need to give her an Achilles heel in some way, because otherwise she's just jumped through every hoop with flying colors. Right. And he more or less is kissing her under the water to provide her oxygen, which makes sense. I don't mind that they did that but I would have liked it more if it was like something that they had to awkwardly talk about later I actually don't buy them as a couple I don't buy them as love interests I'd rather they just be partners in this whole thing um, because when the romantic element does eventually I don't want to say rear its ugly head but rear its head it just feels so forced like Oh, yeah, that's what was supposed to happen the whole time. 
and it doesn't work for these two characters. And and that's insane because the actors have such incredible chemistry on and off the set, but this just doesn't work for these characters. I 1000% agree. That was a point that I was going to make when we talked about the characters. I don't think that this needed to be a romance. I don't think that you needed that element to tell this story. Um, I feel like it sort of weakens Lily's character a little bit because she is so strong. Uh, And I also feel like, you know, it's her and McGregor against the world. They don't need anybody either. Um, So I guess that there is something to be said for it's nice that she did learn to love and let her guard down. Uh, And I do love the, the line of what if, what if the one person is world enough? Yeah. And that he says that back to her later. Um, Again, beautifully written, but I just don't think we needed it to be a romantic story. And I, I a hundred percent agree with you that there is no romantic chemistry between them, which is unbelievable because if you watch any of these interviews that they did when they promoted this movie, they are absolutely hysterical together. She's got a filthy mouth that can match with wits with him. They're making each other laugh. It's brilliant. But like some men and women just have that dynamic where you can bounce off of each other, but there's nothing there. Right. I mean, they are friends. They are legitimate. Friends, oh, for sure. And they have a legitimate friendship. But it's a legitimate friendship that they don't, I'm not going to say that they don't hide, that they cannot, even, and they're both talented actors and and an actress, of course. Um, But the fact that they can't even convey that, the romance between the two of them, I I can tell you what will happen in the sequel because you see it in all of these sequels, whether it be Indiana Jones or The Mummy. The love interest that they get at the end of the movie is never their love interest again in the sequel. And it's like a very awkward relationship. That is probably where they're going to go with this in the sequel, but it's going to work better than the relationship that they ended on where this movie concluded. I don't know about that because now you're going to go, but it's this love hate thing. And we've already seen that play out. Cause she can't stand him. but you know, to parallel pirates again, that's how they played out Elizabeth and uh, Will's characters. They weren't together the entire time. Right. Right. So now this temple gets exposed and this is where we have our final scene and our final battle between the conquistadors and Joaquim and Frank, Lily, Proxima, and McGregor. Um, The only critique I have here is that the temple that we enter doesn't look anything like the temple in the parks. I'm not saying there needed to be treasure everywhere. You didn't have to have monkeys digging through urns, but... In the attraction, the sculptures are so beautiful, and the animals that are in there... I mean, obviously, they're not going to be animals in this one. It was just submerged in water. But I wish that they would have played off of that a little bit, because that part of the attraction, both in California and in Orlando, they're just so impressive, even in this day and age, that I wish they would have just played with that a little bit more counterpoint okay because i thought the exact same thing until yes until uh this goes back to what i was saying before with why didn't we see some of these other scenes from the ride play out technically in the ride that is asia 
because it's supposed to be all of the major rivers. So I can kind of forgive that because it's on a different continent. So I guess that you're not going to pull from that design necessarily. Um, for me, what shouldn't work is this pink flower moon, but it does. The color palette completely changes. The CGI is actually very good. I feel it's like this is where here. they spent the most time here. Yeah. Uh, I love how they figure out to break the arrowhead and put the pedal in with the, the heartbroken warrior and his love interest and put them back together. Um, that was all very well done for me. Um, and I like how everyone right down to Proxima and McGregor has a subplot where they each get to take down like the villain that's been torturing them the entire time. Yeah. Um, I really liked how the movie concluded. I liked that Frank sacrificed himself and turned himself into stone. He told us the whole time that's what he was going to do. I buy that the character would do that. I buy that Lily would give up her one petal that would have you know, change the face of medicine to bring him back because at that point she just wants him back more than anything else. Um, the only thing that doesn't make sense to me after all of that is they literally have no proof that any of this existed. And I mean, other than the fact that she had that camera that was taking motion picture, but you never see them take motion picture of the tree in the cave Technically speaking, they have no proof that any of it happened other than we said it did. So when they go back to London and the Royal Society extends an invitation in because of this monumental discovery that they made that they have absolutely no proof of, how is that any different from them just assuming that any of it existed at the beginning of the movie? Well, they do get the one last petal, and I actually like that because we we know that Joaquin wanted a pedal. Lily wanted a pedal because she was going to stage Frank's death and then right. end up giving it to him. So we only see the one pedal in play. After she uses that to bring Frank back to life, this was actually pretty clever, I thought, for going this route. Um, because at first I didn't like it, but it's like, okay, if you're going to do it, you were smart about it. The moon is setting. So it comes through because they've rammed the side of the temple. Mm -hmm. It comes through another crack, illuminates the tree, and they are able to bring one back. See, and I'm watching this movie three times. I missed it. I only caught it on this last time. Uh, so that is their proof. And that is how they are able to redeem themselves in the society's eyes. For me, though, I kind of wish that they did sort of a Titanic ending and left Frank there. And she got the pedal and she went on to do all of these things that she wanted to accomplish in his name. And that would have been enough of like, okay, she loved him, but now we also don't have this relationship that has no chemistry. Yeah, but then you have no sequel. Or the sequel is she goes back to bring him back. I think when they made when they wrote this film, they were clearly thinking this can be a trilogy because that's what Hollywood is now. They don't just make one. You make one, you make three. There, there's no t you either make one or you make three. That's it. If you have source material, you're going for the trilogy, and that's where it's sort of like I respect everything that the Rock does because he is 
probably the hardest working person in the entertainment industry. He's got so much going on. The the guy, I don't know when he sleeps between working out and doing all these various productions and the, the football team. And, you know, I respect the heck out of him and what Seven Bucks Productions is doing. But I guess that's it because his company is producing these films. He's certainly not going to write himself out of it if they're doing the sequels. But I would have respected that story a lot more if they left him frozen in time, which is what he said he wanted for his character because he was ready to go. And obviously that's what Lily helped him to realize that your life is worth living because the difference this time around is that you're going to have love in your life that you didn't have before. But um, I think it would have been more effective if this just became Lily's story and that baton was passed and, you know, maybe McGregor is running a cruise line now and he's the cheesy skipper. I don't know. Are we ready to move on and discuss the cast and characters of yes. this film? All right. Let's start with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, Frank uh, Frank Wolf. He he gets it. The the Dwayne Johnson, I, I want to keep calling uh, the hell with it. I'm going to call him The Rock because he's been The Rock since I was 10 years old. I know, I know that's the wrestling and the stage name, and we probably don't even have the rights to call him that, but I think we did it in Moana. But his actor name is Dwayne Johnson. Just Vince in case McMahon doesn't like it, he can come get me. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, for somebody that has literally spent two-thirds of their life watching him and, and watching what he has become, because I remember when he got the Scorpion King, the Mummy sequel, what a big deal that was, because that was his first movie. And seeing where he has come... It's so incredible to be witness to this career that started when he was calling people jabronis on Monday Night Raw. You know, like, it's... I love that he has this success. I love him as, you know, an active participant in the industry. And I love him in this movie. I love this character. I love the way he plays him. I love that he is he gets the whole Disney thing. I think he really is a Disney fan. For sure. You know, to steal a term that I've heard you use on social media quite a bit, he understood the assignment. Um, and he was just absolutely perfect. And that's where it's like, as frustrated as I am, that Lily didn't give him what he wanted, which was just to basically to die. That's what he wanted. That's why I'm glad that they brought him back, because I'm ready to see more of his adventures, too. Uh, I, I think he did an incredible job. I like the character. Uh, I agree. He understood the assignment when it came to delivering the Jungle Cruise shtick. And if you watch the deleted scenes, I mean, there are so many more puns that were on the cutting room floor. I think he nailed that. The only thing that I wish is that he had played Frank a little bit more aloof because we just see that Frank lets everything roll right off his back. And that's what you expect once you learn that he's 400 years old. And it's like, I've seen everything. I've seen things that are so much worse than what we're experiencing right, right now. You know, we can just roll with the punches here. But I feel like he could have done a little bit more to make us unsure of whether or not we could actually trust him. 
Yeah. I feel like we always know he's going to do the right thing. We're like with Jack Sparrow, you could really never tell whose side he was on up until like the second, third movie. But in this case, it was so obvious that he had feelings for Lily. You always knew that he was going to come through for her no matter what. So I kind of wish he did do things that were a little bit more untrustworthy other than like stay out of my cabin or no I was gonna call the whole thing off like I feel like as the audience we were just able to trust him unconditionally Emily Blunt plays Lily Houghton um perfection need we say more she's she's I I feel lost honestly without Panda here because our dear friend John Sicari it's been the running joke he has reviewed every single movie when we have done a movie with Emily Blunt, he did Into the Woods with us. He did Mary Poppins Returns with us. And we desperately wanted to have him back on for Jungle Cruise. But our schedules weren't able to align on this one. Not for anything. My heart doesn't bleed for him that bad because I'm not going to. He's having fun right now. I know, it's, he's it's no one's so, business. I'm not going to tell everybody what he's doing right now, but he's off having a good time. He is so busy and he's got so many media commitments. I'm very happy for him. But it is certainly our loss. I feel the loss because I, I don't have words. And this is where he would come to the rescue with like the perfect phrase for how great Emily Blunt is. Yeah, I I will agree with you. I do miss having him here, but we'll have him back soon. Uh, Jack Whitehall plays McGregor. He's so funny because here's the thing. There was a big risk that you ran here where the brother-sister relationship here would have been too much like the brother-sister relationship in The Mummy. It's almost the exact same thing, but there is just enough about it that's different where it feels unique, and I think that most of that has to do with the way that Jack Whitehall played this character. It was just brilliant. He was such a scene-stealer in in every single one, whether it was comedic timing whether it was sincerity he just delivers everything so perfectly like I I just in every single scene there are things that are happening that are bigger than his character but you just gravitate towards that character no matter what else is going on yeah Edgar Ramirez plays Don Aguirre um I kind of wish we would have seen more of him um like I said earlier, he could be a conflicted big bad. It would have made for a really, I think it would have made for a better story. Um, not that this wasn't good, but I, I feel like I want to know more about him because I don't feel like I'm 100% committed to him yet, and I want to be. Get out of my head, man. That's exactly how I feel. I just wanted more of it. Like, the aesthetic so cool. Uh, I I feel like this was a classic example of still waters run deep for somebody who didn't have a lot of lines. The emotion that he gives in the scenes where his daughter's sick uh, is just so well done. But I feel like we barely even scratched the surface with this character. Jesse Plemons plays Prince Joaquin. Good Lord. I... Honestly think, and this might say a lot about me, I think he's my favorite character in the movie. Uh, 
Me too. And I want to say scene stealer for him too, but I don't want to take away from from McGregor. The scene with the two of them is probably my favorite in the entire movie with the jungle, where they're just yeah. having that back and forth. Um, this was such a surprise for me with Jesse Plemons' character. I didn't know anything about him until he was in Breaking Bad. And I literally thought it was Matt Damon in makeup because Matt Damon has been known to do things like that and do these cameos and hide in plain sight. And I really thought that was him having no idea that it was an entirely different actor. And this guy has had such a huge career. Yeah. He has been in so many popular television shows and films, but I feel like he does not get the credit that he deserves for all of that. And this is why, because he's such a brilliant actor. Not only does he play the villain, he he kind of gives it that classic Disney animated villain panache that we love so much yes. about Jafar and Scar and Ursula and Cruella. Uh, he managed to put that in human form, I dare say, better than any live action remake we've ever seen so far um and what i love too is that he helped conceptualize this character he wanted to uh contribute to to the development and the wardrobe and the props that were used and like he really got in it yeah he and he wanted him to be unique he wanted him to be different from the stereotypical german villain that you've seen so many times. And I think that he accomplished that. For sure. Veronica Falcone plays Trader Sam. Not much. I like her in this. I think she's funny. I think that she's wise. I think that she gave this character, I think she gave her a great voice. I bought it. I really liked her in this role. Yeah, my only critique is like what I said before, that I wish that she was a bit more shysty. But what I will say is that with the sequel... I hope that they thread Trader Sam as more of a main part of the story instead of a plot device. I agree. I want to peel back that onion much more. Paul Giamatti plays Nilo, and he's Paul Giamatti, folks. He is one of the most talented actors in the industry. I wish we had more time with him, but we didn't need more time with him at the same time. Um, that's That's kind of... A weird thing to say, but that's my conflict. We didn't need more, but I wish we had a little bit more. I think you get him back for the sequel. Interestingly enough, though, this was Paul Giamatti's first time playing an Italian. That's why he was so keen to take on this role. And same thing as Jesse Plemons. Uh, it was his idea to have the bird with Franco Osmimani. Mm -hmm. uh, and he contributed a lot to the style and the development of his character as well. Final thoughts. On the Jungle Cruise. I'll go first. Okay. I love movies of this ilk. I love films from this genre. I love that this feels like one of those old, like, 80s treasure hunt movies. Um, I love the cast. I think the running time is perfect. I think the pacing is really good. Um... Not flawless, but it's a great popcorn flick. It's a lot of fun. I think that it's the right amount of fan service 
without you feeling left out if you've never been to a Disney park before. And the more I watch this, the more I enjoy it. And I dare say that the more I see it, I think it's going to surpass a lot of the Pirates of the Caribbean films in my personal ranking of attractions turned to film. Wow. That's a bold statement. Is it? Yes. Because when we first walked out of the theater after our first time seeing this, I remember thinking to myself, oh gosh, we're going to have such an unpopular opinion of this film. And I was prepared to do this review and lambast it. I honestly thought I was going to be sparring with Panda if he came on for this episode. (laughs) That is what I was preparing myself for. But this is one of those films where I really needed to stop looking at it for what I thought it was going to be, what I wanted it to be, and start focusing on what it is. And once we sat down to watch it for the show and for this recording, I was able to not only do that, but I enjoyed it more and more on its own. Not not just for what it is, but just completely clearing my head of everything. I really do like it. Do I think that we needed the supernatural element? Not necessarily. I still do think that that is derivative, but I still really enjoy the story that they told. Um, do we need a sequel? No, not really, but being that we're getting one, I am excited to spend some more time with these characters and most certainly Trader Sam. Definitely more Trader Sam for the sequel. And we want to know what you have to say about The Jungle Cruise. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can shoot us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you are looking for branding, uh, print and graphic design media kits, or perhaps you have an event coming up, you need save the dates, thank you cards, table numbers, or if you're just looking for that really unique art print or stationery, perhaps home decor that is Disney-inspired, Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So. A lot of news this week. A lot of news this week. The first couple of things that I want to talk about, I feel like we're going to get through them kind of fast because I am so tired of talking about a post-COVID world. But when it comes to the Disney parks, at times it's impossible not to talk about a post-COVID world. Right. And sometimes you need to celebrate being in this post-COVID world. Starting with Fantasmic at the Disneyland Resort is starting to take test runs again. So it sounds like they're getting ready to bring that back. No word yet on what's happening in Orlando. 
they did a major renovation of the theater and the track system at uh, at studios. And right now, they have not put the water back. It is still drained. Yes, they can drain the water, folks. Um, so no word on that yet, but I think the fact that they are starting to test it again in California means it's coming back. It's just things pointing in the right direction. Well, I also, to be fair, don't think that that had as much to do with COVID as it did to do with they are adding a scene. I mean, obviously it's been shut down for years because of COVID, but I think when they decided that they were going to bring it back, they were like, all right, let's change it. And now that's the holdup as opposed to, you know, just social distancing. And and this is what Disney does, right? They announce something and then we don't see it for another year. So who knows when it's coming back? Universal Studios. They're going to get an entire park done before we get Tron. Yeah. In the time it's going to take Disney to open up Tron at the Magic Kingdom, a ride that they have already opened up at another park, Universal Studios is getting an entire third gate opened. Just think about that for a minute. Just think about that. No, and I get it. I know that they're trying to appease the APs with creating hype around what's going to be new and different. However, stop announcing things when they're not ready to go. Something that we know will be ready to go are some of the restaurants that are reopening at the Walt Disney World Resort. We have three of them that were announced. Flying Fish at the Boardwalk is reopening on January 27th. The Turf Club and Bar at the, or the Turf Club Bar and Grill, I should say, at Saratoga Springs is reopening on February 3rd. And Chico at the Animal Kingdom Lodge is reopening on February 17th. Um... It's exciting to see that your dining options at Walt Disney World are starting to expand again. And I believe that some of the buffets are coming back as well. That's going to be a slow burn, but they are going to start reopening the self-serve. Now, let's... Time for stupid news. You know, you Jackie know, my preferred snack... Every single day is popcorn. I love it. I I eat it a couple of times a week. I, I would say at least two or three nights a week you make a snack. I can't wait to go to the movies to get that nice, big, hot, buttered bucket of popcorn to enjoy with my film. It is my go-to snack of choice. And I suppose I should preface this with, For someone who loves movies so much, I hate popcorn. The only popcorn I eat was when, you know, your distant relative would send you the popcorn bucket with like the cheddar, the the white cheddar and the and the caramel corn around Christmas. Yeah, that's the extent of my popcorn snacking. And that big tin bucket turned into a piggy bank every single year. Exactly. But even no. And my God rest her soul. I love my great aunt so much, but she would buy one for me and one for my brother. And I would have like a couple of handfuls and be like, okay, I'm done with this. Every year we got one. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is I will never not have popcorn on Main Street at the Magic Kingdom. But if I have to wait more than 10 minutes for popcorn at any location, I go... I'll come back later. Or I'll get it on the next park day. Whatever. I would never 
ever stand online for seven hours to get popcorn. I don't care what bucket it is in. But that is what happened on the first day of the Festival of the Arts at Epcot Center because the figment popcorn bucket came out seven hours. People waited. By the next day, the lines were cut down to 45 minutes. As of now, and this is not confirmed, they are sold out. Whether that is for the entirety of the festival or not is what is not confirmed. But what we do know right now is that there are no more popcorn buckets in figment shape at Walt Disney World. Now, we have noticed a problem with people that are hoarding Disney Parks merchandise so that they can put it on eBay. This goes back to when they announced that Splash Mountain would be closing. That was a few years ago. Right, and with 50th anniversary merch, they got ahead of it, limit two per person. Right, and there was the supply uh, supply chain issue. We talked about that on our recap trip from November, and we discussed that, uh, you know, the, the influx of 50th merch when we dropped our little bonus episode last week. We took that quick shot down uh, to Disney, and we talked about it then, so I'm not going to hash that out again. You can listen to the bonus episode. Um, now, here's the thing. There are a lot of people, ourselves included, who are frustrated that people are buying these things up so that they can mark them up and sell them on eBay. We saw it with our own eyes with the Disney Plus Day hats. Correct. We couldn't get one. We were in the parks on Disney Plus Day, and yet they were up on eBay within five minutes of park open. So it's frustrating. For sure it is frustrating. And Disney did try their best at least with the 50th merch, limited two per person. They took that approach here too. Now, you can debate whether or not it should have been one per person as opposed to two per person because you would have at least had the buckets for a couple of more days. You can make the case for you would have had them for twice as long, so logic would dictate you would have had them at least until the middle of this week. But there's, there, there's a pull here where my frustrations lie. And this is kind of what I want to hash out. You have people that pre-bought popcorn buckets through second-party websites that were promising that they would have buckets available because they pay people to stand on the line to get the bucket. Right. They advertise it. That's not fair. No. So you can get aggravated at the seller. You can get aggravated at the entrepreneur that is trying to take Disney Parks merchandise that is tough to come by and selling it. Technically, they're not doing anything illegal. It's just kind of immoral when you have so many Disney Park fans that want the bucket. And it's like, you can have it for $300. Then there's the Disney Parks fans that are actually paying that money. They are a big part of this problem. I agree. Because here's my one of my bigger issues with this entire situation. Do I like popcorn? No, not really. Do I like figment? 
I freaking love Figment. I am a journey into the imagination stand, the old one with the dream finder. If everybody else loves Figment so much, why is that ride a walk-on? This just goes to show it was not so much about the character as it was the FOMO gotta have it nonsense. And that does fall to your point on the seller as much as it does the buyer or the customer, as Bob Chapek likes to call us. Consumers. Well, and that's the third element to this that I think is worth discussing. I do think, to an extent, Disney carries some of this blame. And let me tell you why. Other than the fact that they allowed two per person and they probably should have just been one per person, you think for one second they don't get off on this? Right. Social media FOMO. The saddest people on earth. Listen, I want to be at everything that Disney does. I'm not waiting seven hours for a popcorn bucket. I don't have FOMO that bad. Think of what we did in seven hours. We were there for a quick overnight. You and I got to Disney Springs at around 11 o'clock in the morning. We got to Gideon's. We went to Dockside Margaritas. We went to the boathouse. We got Joffrey's, took it back to our hotel, checked into the hotel, hung out at the hotel for like an hour before changing to go to Ale and Compass for dinner. That's a lot. Think about that. Think about that for a minute. I am not going to get on, on a line because I have FOMO and I have to put it on social media. And there are a lot of people out there that wanted the bucket because they love Figment. And there are a lot of people that got on the line because I have to. Look, I have to be a part of this. I have it first. And this is where Disney holds part of the blame. It's free publicity. Mm-hmm. You can't blame them for that. But you know, for when Universal Studios is throwing shade at Disney on their social media. Yeah, that was brilliant. It is, but what does it do? It puts attention on Disney. Disney was insulted, for all intents and purposes, by their competition. And all it did was put more focus on them. Right. And that's where it's like, there is no lesson here. And unfortunately, not much incentive to change anything about what they're doing. Here's the thing. You could argue that this is a supply chain issue. And maybe they just went through the amount of buckets that they had at this point. Because we noticed that, too, how much Christmas merchandise there was in stores now versus in November when people are buying gifts for their families. You could tell these deliveries are about a month or so behind at this point. So there could be figment buckets out there. Now, knowing what we know about JPEG... Who's to say that they don't have them and they're not going to put them out because they're creating this? That's my point. They had stanchions ready to go and they had a cast member with the line ends here sign ready to go. That you see on Flight of Passage, that you see on Smuggler's Run, that you see on Rise of the Resistance for a popcorn cart. And that's the unfortunate thing. They will never limit this to one per household. And, And it's not fair because it's like, What about the people 
who still can't travel because they're immunocompromised and they're afraid to get on a plane because of, of COVID. What if their cousin was going to the parks? And, hey, could you get me a popcorn bucket? I really love figment. You're preventing them, people who really want it, from getting it. I would say one per person is a much better limit in this case than two. I think one per household is even cracking down too much. But at least, you know, let's let's say you and I had off from work. We were able to get down to the parks. We were each able to buy one. We would probably keep one and either use the second one for a giveaway for somebody who really wanted it or, or you know, bring it back for someone who's a fan. It's not fair that the people, but, but this is to your point what they're getting off on, right? Is that it's not fair that the people who really want it can't get it because there's somebody who's willing to pay a higher price for it. $300 on eBay? You know what that would get me? Another production cell from a, that was used in a movie. It would get you a production cell. It would get you a Dooney bag plus. And a Cracker Jack box so I'm that just, I'm not even going to eat. Yeah. So basically, if you really think about it, this made network news. This is just publicity, 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 publicity. This is going to do two things. I'm predicting this now. This is going to do two things. Number one, it's going to drive the price of popcorn buckets up because it can, because people will pay for it. The other thing that it's going to do is that you can be sure that for every event, when there's a limited edition something, it doesn't even need to be a popcorn bucket be anything Disney's going to put it out on their social media this is coming out tomorrow here's where you can get it so that they have these ridiculous lines for merchandise because now gotta have it gotta get there gotta take off of work tomorrow gotta gotta pull the kids out of school gotta get my parks tickets gotta stand on line and it, it you know it feeds the machine right and Disney's a business and I'm not I am never going to fault Disney for making money and operating as a business because that's what they are people that get mad at businesses for making money are irrational but I think a lot of this oh my god I, I gotta wait online seven hours I have to I have to get it they don't have it I, I don't have that's manufactured it's FOMO it's social media but I think they play a hand in it because they were ready for it this time. This wasn't Disney 50 where fights were breaking out over a spirit jersey. And I don't even want to say that this was preparedness for, you know, crowd control. I think they knew the frenzy that this was going to cause. And this is the first of what I think will be many moving forward. Right. And I think that and I hate to keep politicking it, but I think that that does have to do with Chapek versus Iger. This would have happened under Iger no matter what. Right. The FOMO is there. The social media feeds the hype. But the fact that this is going to perpetuate and the way that it's going to perpetuate is because of Chapek because he's not going to do a thing to stop it. It's free. So it's free social media. It's free advertising. It's free publicity. I have been following this on social media. Not not the FOMO element. Let's not misunderstand the the memes that this thing spawned uh universal probably won the whole thing with their tweet but there were just brilliant memes to come out of this but 
one of my favorite posts was that Chapek a few years ago, uh, I forget what it uh, was. It was it the Velocicoaster or no? It was Hagrid because the Velocicoaster is pretty new. It was uh, the wait times for Hagrid were like ten hours when they opened the motorcycle ride. Right. Um, and Chapek said something to the effect of ten hours. That doesn't seem like a success. That's not the measure of success or something like that. And he's eaten those words now. Yeah, because now it's. 10 hours for an attraction that you get to experience or seven hours for a piece of plastic. Your choice. You choose. But we're interested in knowing from you what you have to say about any of these reopenings with the restaurants, how you feel about the popcorn buckets. Do you you have a bucket? Do you have a bucket? How did did you you get it? Did you wait on the line? Were you FOMO? Or are you nervous that perhaps this is going to become the new normal, that they are going to start teasing these limited edition collector's items that by the next day are 45 minute waits but you know you waited seven hours and nbc picked it up so good looking out on us let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio or email us monoreal radio at gmail.com thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on monoreal radio don't forget to like subscribe and rate us on verbal or your podcast platform of choice of course we mentioned that social media we are also on tiktok as well at monoreal radio and for links to Everywhere that you can find the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.